This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hello and welcome to another podcast as part of the skill acquisition content for UK Coaching. Today I'm joined by a fabulous guest to discuss non-linear developments. Um, so uh, without any ado, Mark Sullivan, could you introduce yourself please? Oh, thank you, Marianne. Um, my name is Mark O'Sullivan. I'm originally from Cork City in Ireland, uh, but I've been living in Stockholm, Sweden since 1994. Grew up in a family of sport and music, so I've worked in both, um, if you want to call them, branches or arts, whatever. Um, I am now at uh, work with Swedish Premier League club, AIK, and the senior team plays in the National Stadium. I am head of youth development with a focus on the 8 to 12 age group. But I also coach and work with and mentor coaches in the older age groups. Um, and I'm also, we also, I also help set up some colleagues, Dennis Fortean and uh, James Vaughan. Um, what I believe is Scandinavia's first research and development department in a football club. I'm also doing a PhD in... Uh, about our work at AIK, uh, under the guidance of Keith Davids and James Rumble from uh, Sheffield Hallam University. Great, thank you very much. And uh, um, yes, I, I, it's really nice to be able to talk to you about um, nonlinear um, development, and uh, uh, particularly as you work uh, with with an age group that people tend to focus quite a lot on in this area. So um, my first question to you is when people say that learning is non-linear, what do they mean by that? Okay, so the term non-linear refers to the notion that small changes in system properties, now system properties we mean physical, psychological, emotional characteristics, can lead to large changes in uh, emergent behavior and vice versa. So small changes in the system's property can lead to large changes in emergent behavior. For example, subtle changes in uh, a child's tennis racket, its grip, its racket size, uh, its the weight of the racket can lead to the emergence of qualitatively different shots played when compared to uh, playing with a, a larger adult scaled racket. Um, we, we can use the, what, we, what has been termed a constraints-led approach to help coaches conceptualize this inherent non-linearity of the learner and the, and the learning process. So fundamentally, a constraints-led approach highlights the nature of the continuous, complex and dynamic non-linear interactions between an individual, it's a person, a ta- performing a task in an environment, back to the child, forming attacks, hitting a, a ball over um, a net in tennis in an environment. And um, is that a competitive environment? Is it a practice environment? Is it on clay? Is it on grass, etc.? So the, CLA, CLA, the constraints of the approach offers an explanation for emerging behaviours observed in sport and through identifying key interacting constraints. So, for, and also another example, simple example, we like the type of shot played by a young cricket batter. This is great because I've never played cricket and I'm Irish. <laughs> so, 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 for example, 
can, uh, the type of shop played by young cricket batter can be conceptualized as an emerging property of these key interacting constraints, such as the individual's action capabilities, the action capabilities of the batter, the bounce of the ball, the type of ball it can be. It can be the surface. Maybe it's been um, raining for a few days. Maybe you're playing on grass. Maybe we're just practicing on a different type of surface. Um, the position of the fielders and the ever-changing scoreline where we are in the game and even up to the norms of the country in which the batter is based. What are the, um, the skills and, and attributes that are appreciated in that country? So changes in system properties have varying influence over varying timescales, performance, learning and development. And really, too, I know this is a lot to take in, but I use Caronado's notion of learning in development, not learning and development. It's learning in development to provide a user friendly explanation of basically everything that I just said. So the concept of learning in, de in development I believe can help coaches, parents and organizations understand how different factors influence learning throughout development. This can help us gain an understanding of the non-linear and individualized nature of players learning in development. So essentially development would describe the continuous changes like physical, a child growing, uh, muscle, bones, tendons, etc. Psychological, uh, skill development and even changes in the social or the cultural um, aspects. So development describes the continual changes in this individual environment relationship. So these developmental changes of how an individual interacts with an environment, that's what, and learning takes place in the midst of these development changes and learning is what the individual does about these changes. So development describes continuous changes and learning is what the individual does about these changes. Thank you. There's uh, lots in there, but um, a really nice, um, a really nice introduction to, you know, the. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that the, the learning and development idea is really, really simple when you think of it, because you're looking at development at different scales at the individual. I mean, it can be a development from in football from a child playing from 5v5 to 7v7. Suddenly there's more players. It's a bigger pitch. The goal is bigger. Maybe the ball is a different size and a different weight. And then we have difference in society. If we just look at how COVID has changed us and even cultural influences. And this infects how individuals interact with their environment. And learning is happens in the midst of these development changes and, it's what, and learning is what we do about it. So I find that I found it really, really helpful. Yeah, that's 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 a really nice, uh, a really nice summary. I love the story you tell about the, um, the children oh, yeah. in an apartment <laughs> to recognize that actually these changes when you see a snapshot, that's yeah. not really going to tell you much. <laughs> About. No, yeah, of course, we're, we're very good at, at, at trying to document snapshots of development on talent pathways, if you want to. Um, so, yeah, so children arrive at your training with a whole bibliography of experiences and opportunities afforded to them up to that point of time. So, for example, two eight-year-olds living in a 10-story apartment block of flats, um, Top floor is one eight-year-old. Uh, it's a single mother who works all day. The, 
the, uh, the child's grandmother, who's quite frail, takes care of the child, doesn't often go out because of her frailty. The child spends a lot of time indoors. On the bottom floor um, is a child with older siblings, and he's out in the garden or whatever, the common garden area around the block of flats, playing playing football, climbing, whatever, with his with his um, old, older siblings. And these two children arrive at your training with vastly different bibliography experiences and opportunities offered from that point of time. And we have to recognize this in some way. We have to understand this because if we take a snapshot of that time, we will start looking at just one player or one individual, one child that is capable of doing something and probably one child that is not. And we we have no idea um, of the potential that maybe the child that hasn't been offered so much experience and opportunities to interact with football environments due to the constraints of the of the family situation. And um, we don't know how good they can become when given the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. I think that's that's a really nice um, segue into my next question, actually, which is um, <laughs> what implications does this have for the athlete development frameworks? And can you connect it with a phrase that you've used many times and that I absolutely love, um, which is as many as possible, as long as possible, in as good an environment as possible? Mm, OK, so well, it's we appreciate that learning is a nonlinear process. This implies coaching. Our coaching methodologies uh, should accommodate for this. I guess it's also quite reasonable to suggest that player development or athlete development pathways should also account for this nonlinearity. However, um, this is arguably not the case. So we, we, there's quite a, there's a plethora of gen generic linear pathways where practice of early selection and deselection of children to ages and stages are seemingly central tenants of many athlete development programs, player, particularly in my sport, football, around the world. And these are, these are quite a common point of departure for, of discussion. So I guess often referred to as a standard, the standard model of talent development is based on the presumption that development and performance to sport are conceptually linear and predictable. So... A good question to ask would be, why are we using generic linear pathways in an effort to find unique people? So this idea of as many as possible, as long as possible, in as good environment as possible, is about encouraging, uh, to, encouraging us to keep the system open. Now, I understand there are also other factors that influence how open and how long we can keep a system open. Of course, there's available facilities, available staff, and there's also financial issues, etc. Uh, but many of these generic linear pathways, they operate around their systems of exclusion, and in particular, the early exclusion of children. And often these systems are based on survivorship bias, where we only hear about those that made it through the system. And, you know, the, let's be honest, in, in this in our world today, the clickbait story of the kid who was identified at eight by a scout and went on to become a pro gathers more column, in, column inches than the young kid who arrived late from outside the system and went on to become a pro. So I think that you can say summary, talent is really the graveyard of evidence. Nobody sees the dead bodies. 
And there's, there's a wonderful quote by Ross Tuck, Ross Tuck around this when he's referring to some of these systems. He says, you've been blinded by unicorns and survivors and misled by economic forces. So I think that's how So as many as possible, as long as possible, as good environment as possible, it's about keeping young people in sports, encouraging them to continue in sports throughout life, but also developing top elite athletes. So it is important to... to I want to add here, this is not a criticism of the coaches that work within these systems. I know, I, I know and I'm personally friends with a lot of people who do, and some of these are really exceptional coaches. So this is not a criticism of the coaches. We just need to rethink um, who are these generic linear systems actually for. So for a more nuanced approach, and in order to, to place the child or the youth, whatever, at the, the player, the athlete at the centre of this discussion from a long-term learning perspective. I think we need to, to turn some of our questions, commonly asked questions around. So when I'm asked about, I'm often asked about in the existence ability grouping, should we have ability grouping, yes or no? Should we select early or deselect, yes or no? I'm starting to answer with other questions now. I'm, I'm asking, what is your understanding of the learner and the learning process? What is your understanding of human learning and development in youth football? We, we need much better questions around this. I mean, if you if you want to have a discussion about ability grouping and selection and deselection of children, maybe you need to have an informed understanding of the learner and the learner learning process, human uh, human learning and development and sport. And this is, again, back to the concept, uh, Karen Adel's concept of learning and development. And I believe this can help coaches, parents and organisations understand how so many different factors influence learning throughout development and help us back, back again, gain an understanding of nonlinear and individualised nature of players learning and development. So, for example, I'm often... What specific social cultural constraints or behaviours do we need to amplify and what do we need to dampen? So in our, particularly in, in the sport I work in, football, the use of the word elite in reference to children is quite common. And this is added to our sensational artificial methodology in around the culture of childhood sports. So, so maybe, we sh maybe we can begin somewhere with, I like the idea of language precedes culture. Maybe the word, maybe we should consider what language we use in and around these generic linear youth pathways if we want to start um, changing the conversation and, and try and facilitate better discussions through better questions. So again, and this is something that was highlighted by the International Olympic Committee in 2015 when they basically said that the culture of youth sports in general is disproportionately both adult and media-centred, media viewing youth athletes as commodities, promoting a sensationalism that has an influential grip on adult expectations. So I think particularly in this idea, within this model of learning development, we need to pay particular attention to the social cultural constraints and behaviour, what we need to amplify and what we need to dampen. I think some of the language we really, really need to dampen. Words like elite around children, words like product, etc., product of. So that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's a very, it's a, yes, it's a very good answer. I I, I mean, I'm thinking that um, for many coaches, they're probably thinking, well, there's not an awful lot of things that I actually have control over. 
but like you say language is one that they can and, yes. and they can also have influence and and try and exert some influence around some of the other con the constraints around them including maybe conversations with parents and schools and even if they can't exactly. change the NGBs I, some of the other stuff but look at where you can maybe I you know and I think that when I'm working with coaches educating coaches in our club or working with parents it's when they start asking better questions that's when you know things are happening they're not might that might not be the question you want but yeah. when, once they're better questions they're they're starting from a more informed base then, and that's when things really happen, I think. Yeah, for sure. Curiosity, you know, opening up that door to curiosity, doesn't mm. it? Mm. So, um, I, listening to this, um, it would appear that this notion of non-linear development and non-linearity of learning is challenging some of the ages and stages models. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of these ages and stages models, now, particularly in football, I would have more knowledge of um, where at a certain age, a child should be able to do this technique. And then by that age, read it. so you can have the classic example. This is a great conversation I had with them. Um, um, I think it was a, one of Russ Learnshaw's podcasts or events. It was about um, Danny, who works with um, Wales Hockey, who's an international coach there and uh, a fellow researcher as well at Sheffield Hallam. Um, we were discussing with some hockey coaches, rugby coaches and soccer coaches about, you know, I see a lot of this, oh, you have to be able to kick with both feet or some player, you know, you should be able to do this with your left foot and your right foot by the age of 10 or whatever, 11. And I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm very skeptical of this, um, you know, <laughs> because if you just need to look at some of the best players in the world and some of them use only one leg for standing on. Um, you know, we have, we have wonderful footballers that aren't fast. We have wonderful footballers that can't head a ball. We have wonderful footballers that cannot dribble or tackle, you know? So I think, I, got, I remember I was in discussion with some Spanish coaches at RCD Espanol many years ago, and they were always said, you know, Xavi challenges, they said to me, Xavi challenges, who used their Barcelona challenges a lot of myths around player development because he he doesn't dribble past players, he can't tackle, but he controls games because his his command of time and space is so good. It's so good. He closes off space so people it's very hard to get past, get the ball past him. And he's so good at finding space and opening up space for other players and using and his penetrative passing. So again, that a child must a young player must accumulate all these techniques to be allowed to play the game is pretty false. And if you go back to the one of, oh, so you have a kid who's very good with his right foot, how, you know, this idea of forcing to be good with his left foot, oh, you must, are saying you must only play with your left foot now. That's not, I don't think that is really good because like a lot of these ages and stages models, if they're so prescribed, we could be denying children the opportunity to explore and uh, the, their, their um, practice and competitive environment and find their own unique ways of solving problems. So, so for example, instead of saying to a kid, um, okay, you need to use now your, just your left foot, you can maybe inform an opponent that, have you not noticed that this kid just plays mainly on his right? So can you force him a bit onto his left and let's see what happens and make it difficult for him? So maybe the kid does begin to use his left foot more 
or maybe the kid struggles for quite a while. And then maybe over time, the kid finds other solutions with just his right foot without using his left foot. But in by even just uh, giving that little information to a player, and in some way, I guess you're you're constraining the actions of the what we refer to as a one-footed player. You are also um, helping uh, create the potential for that player to explore. So, and also then there's this benchmarks I see in a lot of these ages and stages models. And you know, a child at a certain age should be able to, or thirteen or fourteen, lift their own weight, should be able to squat like this and do this. Now, the thing is, a lot of the literature around this is based on strength. It's not based on skill. Strength does not imply skill. And I think a lot of you end up with a lot of people just practicing the benchmarks to be able to do the benchmarks and to tick the box. So I would think so strength is not skill, but skill is strength. And I think the more skillful people we have are the more skillful individuals. Then these benchmarks are just or whatever you want to call them are just things that they can do. Yeah, that's, and that's reminding me of the sort of fundamental movement skills and how that's ended up in some places being. Um, you know, yeah, we, we yeah, I have a, me and a few colleagues, James Red and Carl Woods, have a chapter coming up in that uh, yeah. in, in a book in October. So <laughs> we, we'll save that for later. We'll save that, uh, save that can, of worms, can I, of worms for later. <laughs> I love the example of the um, of, of the football that you've just given, especially as as actually. In you know, in that example, the the practice is much more likely to be representative of what's going to happen to them during a game when maybe an opponent yes. player notices that they're a bit weaker, and and the, so this it is there's a representativeness there that will help them to be able to problem solve, you know, in 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 play rather than just in practice. Um, yes, I, I think that that's a nice a nice um, place then to um, maybe have a. You know, if you've got some suggestions for designing tasks mm-hmm. that will help players, yeah, um, okay, maybe maybe some good old self self promotion time here. Uh, <laughs> is that okay? Is this allowed? Absolutely. <laughs> Go for it. So uh, I'm thinking. I was hoping so you it, would. <laughs> <laughs> so in in a, uh, it's not music. This is we're going to sport. I'm not promoting music. So, uh, so in our in our. In our paper towards a contemporary player learning and development framework for sports practitioners, which we published um, a few months back, um, we introduced the foundations for task task design model to support coaches at all levels in their planning, observation and reflection. So the foundations for task design model captures the main principles of nonlinear pedagogy in a user-friendly way to support the design of football-specific tasks. Now, this task design model can actually be applied to, I would say, most um, invasion sports. But um, because I work in football, and the practical example we gave was about our work at AIK in, uh, in football. So we, we, we built a model around designing football specific tasks. So the model, just in a simple form, is ball, opponent, direction, consequence, representative information. So there's a ball. There's an opponent or opponents. There's a direction. You're going somewhere, meaning that I'm I'm very reluctant to use a lot of possession games where you just keep the ball for the sake of keeping the ball because there's no real consequence 
and there's no there's not much there's no direction so i like to have a direction whether it's a goal or a target and it can also be multi-directional as well so but then there's a consequence meaning if you lose the ball the opponent can do something score a goal etc and the information must be representative of the game so the information and in practice should reflect the information that players act on in the competitive environment so an example a simple example i'll give you two examples um so a session designed of a 4v4 game where uh, everyone must touch the ball before a goal is scored. While it has a ball, it does have opponents, it has direction, there's a consequence, but the information is not really representative because all to solve this, all you have to do is gather around one player and make sure that player doesn't get the ball. Um, so it's, the players are not acting on represent information because maybe after one pass, an opportunity to score um, turns up, but they cannot do it because everyone must touch the ball. So the information is not representative. Another simple example I saw in a recent uh, NGB coach education course was um, a 4v4 game, and at least one player must dribble past a player before a goal is scored. Again, um, this does have ball, opponent, direction, consequence, but doesn't satisfy the representative information criteria because all you really have to do when you lose the ball is just, you, if, if your team loses the ball, just run off the pitch because they can't do anything because they have to beat somebody before, an opponent before they score a goal. So, the inf again, it, it, it over-constrains um, what I would consider, it's no over-constraining the environment. So maybe denying met other possibilities so maybe you you pass a ball and the keeper's way off his line and the the affordance to chip chip the keeper is invited but you can't do it because you have to beat a player first so again you're not acting on representative information and within this model i just to very briefly for finish up highlight some very simple details i know the idea of guided discovery is is a term that's used a lot and i get one that i quite welcome but it's may and it's mainly associated with questioning. However, <clears throat> while young players may display knowledge about the game when verbalizing responses to questions posed from a coach, it does not necessarily imply that they will actually perform these actions in the game. And <clears throat> in our model, we're leaning on Gibson's work here. We refer to this as knowledge about, and it's typically developed through verbal responses to questions or coach-provided uh, declarative instruction. And it's maybe useful when describing performance. Our foundation task design model is for promoting players' knowledge of the game, their knowledge in, their understanding in the game, their knowledge of the environment. This is more reflective, embodied, embedded knowledge. And it's exemplified in movements, behaviors, and performances. So an important point here is that practice tasks need to be designed by coaches with an extensive knowledge about the game, as this knowledge about collective and individual performance can inform practice designs to support the development of a, of a performer's knowledge of in the game. So, may, so the first question asked of players should really come from your practice design and how the players behave, yes, you observe these behaviors, should inform how you as a coach develop the practice, uh, the practice design. So we have, for example, true manipulation of task constraints, increasing the size of the pitch, 
uh, changing around team numbers, certain rules, maybe, uh, etc. So I think that's a, quite a broad explanation of, of our paper and a broad explanation of how you could possibly work in, in practice. Thank you. And we, we will put the, uh, there is a little um, article that will go with this. Yeah. That diagram. A <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I, I love that. That's just summary at the end there. Because I think for me, it's quite important. Some people think, oh, well, you can just manipulate things and it doesn't really matter if you don't understand the game. No. But it's that coach's knowledge about the game that really yes. them in designing practice that supports the player to develop knowledge of knowledge in, in of, of knowledge of which is in of the, the game. game exactly yeah yeah no, yeah because yeah because our practice we really need to prioritize the practice tasks to develop players knowledge of the game and this this sets great demands on coaches to develop their knowledge about the game lovely brilliant thank you mm -hmm. so much mark Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.